It's time for episode 16 of Super High Sci-Fi to start right now. Uh, as usual, I'm Clark, and with me in Cincinnati is Grant. Hello. Um, we don't really know what happened to Sam. We assume at this point he's dead. We're having him declared dead. So if anybody knows where Sam is, you know, definitely let us let us know. We're very concerned about him. We're going to start putting him on some milk cartons at this rate. A lot of interesting stuff has happened over this past week as far as uh, industry goes, and we thought today might be a good time to just round up some of the new sci-fi news and then talk a little bit about um, what may end up being a two-part series in uh, classic sci-fi movies that are really cult films that started as cult hits. So, Grant, do you have any news you want to lead off with? Mm. There's, there, I mean, there's a few more Jurassic World trailers that came out recently, and you know they're kind of doing a really good viral campaign for this movie. And the trailers that just dropped feature um, Dr. Henry Wu in this kind of Apple-like promo video, talking about how their genetic manipulation of dinosaur DNA has come so far, and that you know the stuff from the first movie, like Mr. DNA and using frog DNA, they kind of poke fun at that saying like oh you know that's that's we're so far beyond that it's not even comparable and i don't know it just it doesn't really reveal anything about the movie but it kind of just is one of those little things to stoke your interest and give you another connection throwback to the the first film and also i think the news came out that they leaked that the original ruins of the first Jurassic Park will play a big role in Jurassic World, so I guess something like Chris Pratt's character and some others have to hide out there when they're on the run from dinosaurs and stuff, because I guess the way it's set up, um, Jurassic World is built on the coast of the island, and the original Jurassic Park was more inland, so there's actually a bunch of wild dinosaurs still living in the rest of the island and Jurassic World is kind of just walled off from all of that. That's really the only thing that uh, has stirred my interest that happened in the last week, sci-fi related. Well, I'm glad to know that Mr. DNA is gone. I always found him annoying. I guess we can cut this out. I'm just distracted by your face you're making. Uh, on TV, though, on the small screen, there's some new shows that are coming for the fall, apparently. We'll see whether or not that this changes as time goes on. Um, apparently, the CW is going to take a stab at uh, a show called Containment, which is going to be about stopping a viral outbreak. Hmm, wasn't there just a show about that that got canceled? Yeah. Called Helix? And this also, the viral epidemic starts in Atlanta, apparently, so maybe, I don't know, I hope it's not zombies. I can't find any information on what the virus is, but I really hope it's not zombies. Mm, yeah, I'm kind of zombied out between The Walking Dead and uh, what's that other CW show that just started, iZombie. Yeah. Yeah. I think the the zombie trend is kind of reaching its apex. Yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, I was kind of zombied out by the time Zack Snyder got around to making his remake of, uh, what is that, Dawn of the Dead in the shopping mall. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there are some funny parts in that movie, but... Uh, I was done in 2004, but, yeah. You know. 2015, I guess, we're taking a stab at it. Uh, DC's Legends of Tomorrow is also on CW. I guess the CW just has a shitload of business from DC now. Yeah. What with uh, Arrow and uh, The Flash. Yep. So this is, for those of you who are familiar with... Uh, comic books it's the the legends of tomorrow i can't say that i'm actually familiar with that series are you uh not too much all i have to say is that it's pretty clear that dc does better on television than marvel does and marvel owns the you know the silver screen yeah i think that the i don't know the the success that you have on the small screen maybe is because DC's characters seem to be better suited for that. Yeah, like the only Marvel thing that's really, 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 really done very well is the new Daredevil series that they put out on Netflix that people 
really love that. And Agents of Shield is a I like Agents of Shield a lot, but a lot of people don't. <laughs> I just read that uh oh boy, Brandon Routh is gonna be uh Ray Palmer. So he's come down quite far in the world to go from being Superman to being on the CW. Well, that's what happens when you you know, you try to make a career out of being a Christopher Reeve clone. Yeah, I really can't think of much else from him, but uh that's all I know him from, Superman yeah. Returns, which was a really bad Superman movie. Yes, it was. That let's not talk about that anymore. Uh Minority Report, the next one banging out our list of sci-fi shows coming out. Uh Fox is picking up I guess some kind of Minority Report type deal about three of the the what are those things called the precogs people. yeah the the people who could detect the crimes before they happen because their mom smokes space crack or whatever yeah they're yeah. mutants basically well it is fox so i guess they can call them mutants they own they own that word that's coming uh, the x-files is coming back so that's interesting we'll see whether or not that's a horrible schlock it might be uh, unfortunately, there's something else coming out that I'm not really sure how to feel about on NBC. Heroes Reborn. Well, I was uh, I was done with the first Heroes series, uh, you know, by the second season. So I don't know what they're going to do with this. I I wasn't I was happy to see it die when it did. Yeah. I I'm just I just I'm, never understood it and latched on to that as much as. Some people I knew, some people I knew loved it and couldn't get enough of it. I just was never really that big of a fan of the show. I mean, they really, it just, I really didn't connect with it. Yeah, it never did much for me. I, I'm not really sure why it's back, but I guess uh, somebody at NBC figured out that all these, yeah, comic book superhero type uh, genre that that kind of uh, area is making a lot of money now. It's very popular. So they might as well dip their toes back in with the property they can get access to. Yeah, I mean, it was making... The, the whole superheroes genre franchise stuff was making a whole ton of money back when Heroes was first on the air. But it's like they kind of lost the ball on the whole storyline in Heroes. And it just kept the quality kept going steadily downhill season to season. And finally they killed it and everybody was kind of relieved. We'll see. We'll see how long this new one lasts. Uh, the, the last series I had to talk about is The Expanse. Yep. On yep. sci-fi. Yep. Yeah, I believe we talked about that in an earlier episode, but that's mm-hmm. the one with um, Jonathan Banks, yep. you know, Mike from Breaking Bad and he I I believe The Expanse is based on like a best-selling series of novels and sci-fi has adapted them and uh, I had confess I haven't read the novels so I'm not really sure what the story is about but I you know usually that helps me enjoy the the show more it's uh the little blurb I have here is that it's about uh, the Thomas Jane the guy from uh The Punisher the Punisher, I you might know him from The Mist too. That's where I think of him. Yep. From yeah. he had like an HBO series for a while or Showtime. I can't remember. Yeah, he was like a gigolo or something. I don't know. He's an intergalactic detective on the hunt for a missing heiress. So I don't know if that's like space nor maybe we'll see. It sounds interesting. I mean, I'll take that. That's great. Yeah, it sounds. Interesting. I'll say that because I'm withholding judgment because sci-fi has a long track record, as we've talked about, of disappointing its fans Mm. and, you know, everybody else alike. So I give them a lot of credit because they're starting to go back to scripted, hard sci-fi shows. They've had some hits with that, like uh, the 12 Monkeys adaptation. And I think they've had some kind of like fizzles out missteps like Helix because that was a really, really interesting show in the first season. And then the second season kind of lost all that momentum, right? Like all the mystery kind of just like got sucked out of the show and they killed like some popular characters and, you know, there was nobody else to really connect with. So I'm hoping they they treat 
the expanse pretty well give it a big budget to do good special effects yeah that always seems to be the death knell for sci-fi sci-fi shows is that they don't put the money into them and then i guess they start saving more money by getting rid of writers and uh just dumping things in a blender yeah it's like the difference between a star trek show and babylon 5 you know Babylon 5, what's that? Never heard of it. <laughs> uh, it's a show with really, really crappy special effects from the 90s, and if you watch it side-by-side side with Star Trek, it's it's kind of disappointing. You just can't get into the show because you don't feel like you're in a universe, actually. Yeah, I don't want to be too cruel to Babylon 5 because they were trying, but I, just not something that really stands up I, I guess now, where Star Trek still has something to say. That's all the things coming to TV series-wise, but I had one more piece of news I thought we should talk about, which this knocked me on my ass, and it was, I don't know if this is a good idea or if it's just a retarded idea that Disney's trying to do, but uh, Disney CEO Robert Iger, man of uh, many talents, has uh, hinted that there may be, like, Marvel or Star Wars channels being offered through Disney and your cable provider or whoever. No real hint on what it is, what that would be, if it's just they're going to run all the movies and shit they can possibly do 24 hours a day, or if it's going to, they're going to try and bring some original programming to that, but... You know, that sounds like something that would be really good for like a channel on a VOD thing or an over-the-top box, like on Apple TV, if the, you know, Disney cut a deal to put like the Marvel channel on there and the Star Wars channel, and you could get original Star Wars and Marvel stuff through those channels. It sounds to me like that'd be a good way to test that out. I mean, because I'm just thinking... I wouldn't pay more to add that to my cable subscription or anything. Like, I wouldn't pay to move up to another tier just to get those channels. Yeah, I'm not sure that the Star Wars or the Marvel channel would be a seller for me, but I guess it depends on what's on them. Yeah, if it's just the movies, I'm probably not going to be interested in it because, you know, as far as Star Wars goes, you know, most Star Wars fans have multiple versions of the movies on their hard drives, on their shelves, etc. And, you know, I'm sure people, the access to the Marvel movies is pretty easy too. We don't need another channel for it. We'll see. I guess they may not even do it. So who knows? But that's really all the news that we had uh, running this week. Yeah, let's talk about sci fi cult films. Well, yeah, let's talk about cult sci fi classics. Or I guess films that were. Not wide, wide box office bomb or bombs. Uh, like they weren't really great when they they came out, but they developed a big following, right? Or you know they were huge box office bombs for whatever reason, and they've just kept on living because either they're so bad that they're good, or they have something about them that people just are uh, rapidly connected to. So let's talk about Pluto Nash. Uh, does that really count as a cult it's, film? It's the one of the best movies ever made. <laughs> I believe it's uh, the the current title holder for most financially disastrous movie. Oh, wait, that's right. Sorry, I had the little pie arrow clicked the wrong way on Wikipedia. Pluto Nash is the worst movie ever made. That's what I meant to say. Yeah, in terms of... I, I remember seeing that movie a couple times and on TV... Thank God. And it was just such a bad movie. And I, re- I don't think that counts as a cult film because nobody likes that movie. <laughs> no, Pluto Nash, I think, is just... Uh, that was an attempt for like a big studio cash-in movie that was going to be great that turned out to be horrible. Yep. All right, so shoot, what do you, what do you got? All right, the first thing on my list is a movie from 1981 with James Bond, Sean Connery in kind of a Wild West and space shootout movie called Outland, Mm -hmm. which 
people hate this movie and you know nobody really likes this movie in the the film critic circle i mean it was it's a hated movie by many people but for a lot of people it's actually a really good movie in terms of the plotting the pacing the special effects and you know just the general grittiness of the movie so Sean Connery he plays a space marshal who is on I think Jupiter's moon Io where they mine some kind of mineral or something Mm -hmm. from there and he's sent there because you know there's been stuff going on like miners have been dying and and things like that and he's been sent there to investigate and he uncovers this plot uh, and I won't throw away anything about the movie really if you know people want to watch this and I recommend it uh, he finds out you know there's this conspiracy going on involving drug trafficking and you know he finds out that the people that run the colony you know are kind of complicit with this and he ends it ends up being like kind of a wild west shootout thing because the people that are run the colony uh, want to get rid of Sean Connery and want him to stop investigating stuff. So they try a lot of things, and eventually it ends up being that you know he's got hired guns like coming after him in this movie, and he has to basically fight them through the colony. And it's it's just a really cool movie. I always I always liked it because it actually has some pretty fun surprises in it. And there's people in there that like you might recognize from other films, like uh, James B. Sicking, who was a uh, Captain Styles in Star Trek Three. Oh yeah. yeah. Yep. The guy with the whip and swagger stick guy. Right. And uh I mean there's a couple James Bond people in there too. Um I I can't remember off the top of my head, but uh, there's there's some recognizable people in there. Oh yeah, Peter Boyle is one of the, like the corrupt leaders of the the mining outfit. So I mean Peter Boyle, you know, young Frankenstein and a lot of everybody loves Raymond and all that stuff. He's he was a really famous guy. And it's kind of weird to see Sean Connery in such like a low low budget movie like this cuz he's already a huge star then. So <laughs> I mean it's it's really weird to to watch him in this, but I always liked it cuz I think it was it's you know, it's before like CGI and really heavy special effects and they did a good job with like a really small budget. Is this the movie where he's wearing like the security, like the Renacop outfit, the blue shirt and stuff the whole time? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because okay. he's like he he becomes like the sheriff of the the mining colony, right? And just okay. finds out you know basically everybody's against him there, <laughs> and he has to basically kill everybody who's coming after him. I was just trying to place this as I. For some reason, I was thinking that this was uh, Zardoz at first, or the one where he is in the weird red leather. Borat bathing suit? No. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. This no, is no. where he is a security rent a cop outfit. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. It's it's just a fun movie. I mean, like I said, a lot of people hate it, but I thought it was a fun movie. I watched it on YouTube the first time I watched it. It's like just up there. No, apparently the rights holders don't really care. Um, and I watched the whole movie on there, and it was just in like uh, I think it's seven twenty p, and it looked it it was fun. Doesn't strike me as a movie you'd care too much about if you held the rights to it. No, I no. Mean, it's that's the point. Like it's a cult movie, right? So only a few people really like it. I guess I count myself among them now, because there's a lot of twists and turns in the movie that you don't see coming. And whereas, like in a lot of action movies, I can pretty much predict what's going to happen because it's so formulaic. But it, this one kind of throws you a few curveballs like people you didn't expect would be coming after him you know they try to get him i don't think i've ever seen this movie all the way through but i'll take a look at it yeah you just fire it up on youtube watch it see what you think i mean by all accounts you know you'll come away saying like ah that was kind of a shitty movie but then later you say "Eh, it was actually a pretty exciting movie oh music by jerry goldsmith yeah so you got a good soundtrack at least all right, one of the films I would say that is definitely a cult hit that Roger Ebert gave one out of four stars to and said it sucked was Dune. <laughs> yeah, I think Dune is uh, probably up there on, um, you, you know, like the top ten list of cult movies. Like Dune's probably like in the top five for most people. <laughs> yeah, the the 1984 one. That's not... such a weird movie. <laughs> no other... Uh... None of the other attempts at adapting 
the source material, but uh, the 1984 one, the one that's under Alan Smithy, since David Lynch said he didn't want to be the director. Well, actually, like, Sci-Fi did do a miniseries. Yep. Like, 15 years ago, which was actually pretty decent. But when people think of Dune, they always think of this movie. Because, like, the weird combination of bad special effects and space stuff with, like, 80s rock music. (laughs) Yeah, if I had to pick a word for this film, it would be, like, disjointed. Yeah. Because the tone is, like, they want to have this mystical sci-fi thing and... And then there's also this political intrigue, like the spice must flow, but then there's very dated, like 80s metal music combined with special effects that belong in the 1930s. Like, as, an, as a watcher of the film, unless you really, you appreciate it already, you kind of come away thinking like, wow, what, what the fuck was that? Like, Yeah, you know, my thing, when I first saw this movie, I thought, you know, the first like third of the movie was really, really heavy sci-fi-ish, and I liked it. As it kept going, though, it kind of got gradually, like, cheesier and cheesier, and, like, the rock music and stuff, the the metal coming into that, and especially towards the end, it just, it was kind of laughable. But you got to give it to everybody who's in this movie. They did it all with a straight face, like, Patrick Stewart's in it, and he kicks ass, (laughs) and uh, Kyle MacLachlan, right? I think that Kyle MacLachlan gets the the gold star for this film, though, because of all the weird shit that... uh... Paul has to do. Yeah. Like discovering that the spice will be destroyed by the secret water underground and he becomes the Messiah who has the the climactic, like, I don't know what you would call it, battle, I guess. Oh, yeah, would fucking sting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who, like, why is he in this movie? <laughs> yeah, that's just, I don't, there's so much, like, 80s stuff going on here. Like, why, why is Sting part of this movie? Why is he now a psychic who can make it rain, like, well, because he drank the water of life. Well, I mean, I understand why in the story that's that way, but it's just, this whole movie is really confusing if you're watching it, but I think it's a cult classic because it's it's still a good story. If you can get past the disjointed feeling and ignore the fact that there's the wrong kind of music playing and there's like paper mache sandworms, just set that aside for a second. It's actually a really cool sci-fi kind of story that has spawned a lot of... Uh, I don't know what you'd call it, like other other properties, like the classic Dune game. Right. It was like the Warcraft clone. Oh, yeah, yeah. The Dune 2 kind of yeah. launched the RTS, mm-hmm. whole RTS genre. That's that's still a really enjoyable game, although very basic. Yeah. I'm mixing this one. I think it definitely belongs on the cult classic list, but... I wouldn't recommend anybody watches it if they're not a sci-fi fan. Well, for one thing, it's just a really long movie. It's like four hours. Yeah. Well, again, I guess it depends on like the cut you're watching, though, because, I mean, it's nothing like uh, Blade Runner, which I'm sure we're going to get to here in a minute, but there are, the versions of this are like... I don't know. I would watch the Alan Smithy version the one that uh, Lynch, David Lynch requested that his name be replaced, Alan Smithy, the, excuse me, the pseudonym that directors put up there when they don't want to be associated with a project. Right, so that's like the theatrical cut. Yeah. yeah. I would say stick with the Alan Smithy version. Yeah, I have to agree with that. It's It's just... It's such a strange movie. It's such a hard book to adapt into a movie, but they they really tried. I mean, it's it was definitely more suited to a miniseries just cuz if you read the book, the book has like so many layers to it. You can't capture that in like a 2 to 4 hour movie. But they tried. And they failed. Yes. It's all the boring political stuff from Star Wars episode 1, but in the 80s. Well, the part that always makes... The, actually, throughout the whole movie, the thing that just makes me laugh is, like, the people's inner monologues. Like, especially uh, oh, yeah. Paul's inner monologue. Like, he's just, like, he's, like, whispering to himself. He's like, I have to put my hand in the box. Must not show fear. Fear is the mind killer, right? <laughs> yeah, put your hand in the pain box. Right. He Yeah, he has to do so much crazy weird shit in this movie. He has to put his hand in the fucking pain box or whatever and, like, doesn't know what's in there. He has to drink the strange water. He has to kill Sting with, like, a little poison dagger or whatever. 
Um, he has to use like his mind powers against the the reverend matriarch lady who like tries to like cast her spells on him. The the prana bindu or what? <laughs> then there's like an this is, there's an assassination attempt with like not even a cyanide pill in your tooth, but a poison gas capsule in the tooth implanted by somebody's like concubine or just. Oh yeah yeah yeah. Um, doctor, um, the doctor who betrays them. Dean Stockwell. Yeah, Dean Stockwell's character, Dr. Yu. Yeah. He betrays them, right, and, you know, Paul's Leto gets killed, right? And and then his plan is to, like, break the tooth and, like, kill the Harkonnens, right, with the poison gas. Yes. <laughs> yes. Which is, yeah, it's just, you kind of throw your hands up at this and say, like, what is going on? Yeah. I don't know. I enjoy it. It's just something that you should watch firmly with that in your mind, that they're adapting a weird book. And they have to fit it into a short amount of time. And it's 1984. Like, just keep all those variables in your head when you watch it. Yeah, it's... Again, like, there's just so many layers in the book. I mean, there's, like, political, social, environmental, all this stuff in the book. And they can't really capture that in a movie. But still, this is a movie that I watch or have watched when I'm doing something else. Like, if I'm on the computer, I'll maybe have this movie in the background or something. Because it's just... It's fun. It's like a weird guilty pleasure so what's next on uh your list of yeah so this is another one people might not know but it's it's an excellent movie and it has some big actor names in it uh it's called time after time yeah and it's a time travel film as you could probably tell so the first thing i love about it is that it's directed by nicholas meyer who you might know from star trek to the wrath of khan and the undiscovered country and Malcolm McDowell plays H.G. Wells, and he actually invents his time machine in this movie. And then David Warner, who has probably the most intriguing, cool voice out of any actor I think is alive today, uh, he actually plays Jack the Ripper. And what happens is that Jack the Ripper steals his time machine and goes forward in time to the 1970s in San Francisco. And H.G. Wells has to follow him there and stop him from like going on a fucking killing spree and stuff. And at the same time, H.G. Wells kind of has this romance with um, Mary Steenburgen's character. And, you know, I won't ruin it for anybody again, obviously, but it's a really, really smart movie. And it's engaging because all the characters have really great things to do. And, I mean, just the design of, like, the the time machine itself, it looks like the Cloud City car a little bit <laughs> without, a, without a good paint job. And, yes, I mean, I, I love how they do this and just, like, the characterization, too. Like, there's this great part where, you know, because H.G. Wells, he gets the, the San Francisco in the 70s, and he was expecting the future to be a utopia, and he's really shocked that you know, the world is run by materialism and greed and there's lots of crime and stuff and he's, like, really disillusioned. Whereas Jack the Ripper gets there and he has this great line where he says, like, you know, back in the 1890s I was a freak. You know, here I'm just an amateur and stuff because he's going on this merry killing spree and he realizes, like, you know, there's people who are killing more people than me here. (laughs) Yeah, he's a real fucking amateur. This is what, uh... Because this is, like, 1979, right? Yes, it's like just 70s San Francisco, but yeah, the movie came out in 79. Oh, I was thinking like that's the Zodiac Killers heyday, so Jack the Ripper's a real noob, like he hasn't gotten it figured out yet. Right, like Jack the Ripper's like the proto-serial killer, and there's guys who are, you know, doing it like, you know, 1970s, we're talking like, you know, the big cases of the time, like Ted Bundy and like the Zodiac and things like that, and he's like, oh man, like, you know, I gotta kill more people, (laughs) I gotta get a higher score. (laughs) Is this I? I vaguely recall seeing something about this. Is this the one where Mary Steenburgen goes back in time and becomes Susan B. Anthony at the end? Yes, she changed. Yeah, okay, yeah. she she changed. Okay, so we just ruined the movie a little bit for people. Yeah, she she goes back in time. Okay, that's I remember. Yeah, but it, it's it's an awesome movie. I, I like it because it's it's not a movie that's really dependent on special effects or anything. It's just got a really good story and it's a it's very smartly written. I think Nicholas Meyer just a really talented guy. Well, people know him from things besides uh, Star Trek and uh, this masterpiece. Um, 
I mean, I don't really know him from anything besides Star Trek that he had done and this, obviously. Right. But I I just know, I mean, he's a he's an excellent filmmaker and and this movie, if you're going to watch a cult movie, a cult sci-fi movie, I would put this on your your top 5 watch list just because you'll come away saying like, why is this a cult movie? Why wasn't this a big hit? Cuz that's what I always wonder when I watch this movie. I think it's one of those right time, right script things that yeah. They might have just missed it by a hair. But Yeah, I mean 1979 probably you know like people were probably expecting a more like more of a Star Wars type movie for sci-fi at that time mm. rather than you know like a character driven like time travel thriller right so like cuz even Star Trek the motion picture like they were going to do a series right and then they changed it into a movie with like huge special effects because Star Wars Yeah, Star Wars ruined everything. Yeah. But I think people, you know, this one kind of, it just got lost in the shuffle, I think. It, it's a gem that needs to be rediscovered. My next movie on my little list here is uh, Mad Max. The original. The original. Yep. Not the one with uh, Bane in it. The original. So the one that <laughs> really kind of bombed, actually. But became, uh, I guess it became bigger because of the the sequels. But it was enough of a hit, enough of a cult classic at the time that I guess to justify a sequel. But it was a ridiculously low budget film with no name. As I think Mel Gibson's story is that I don't. He got in, in a bar fight or something the night before, and one of his friends was wanted to be in the movie, so he drove him out and had like his face all fucked up and. George Miller was like, hey, why don't you try reading? So oh, That was pretty fortuitous for him. I could be making that up. But I think that's the story, but it's just like, this is, Mad Max is not, I think a lot of people, uh, when they hear Mad Max, they think of the, the Road Warrior, Mad Max 2, yeah, where everything is already fucked up and destroyed, but Mad Max is when there's like the last piece of civilization that's trying to maintain order. Yeah, and they're like the police force in the outback, like trying to keep everything under control with their interceptors. Yeah, they're the uh, main force something. Yeah. Yeah, they're trying to stop the social decay that's taking over. Eventually, it doesn't work out for them because the world descends into chaos, as shown in Mad Max 2. But this is when Mad Max was trying his best to shut down. I think it was a crazy motorcycle gang. Yeah, it's, led by Toe Cutter. Right, this is... <laughs> Because like, they kill another one of the cops in Mad Mad Max's police force thing, so Mad Max goes after them because he's the fuck, you know, he's the man. Yeah. He's got a bitchin' car, and I think that really all Toe Cutter and his, his acolytes do is they just they just cause minor trouble because the budget was too low for them to really do anything spectacular. Oh, well, they just kind of, they're like, they come into town and they just, they rough people up yeah. and they, they rape and pillage and stuff that, you know, no big budget special yeah. effects or anything. Just lo-fi stuff, you know, yeah. they, they just like hurt people and, and break walls and they're, yeah. they're the bad guys. Oh, I always like this movie cause it's got a good story and I think that's always really important, especially when you have a tiny budget and they made the most of the tiny budget. I think this movie was just in the, the grand tradition of low budget sci-fi movies like you know, Terminator and stuff. This was like the proof of concept film. Like, hey, look what I can do with this much money. And then that justified giving them much more money to do the Road Warrior. And they said that was like the fulfillment of the vision that he had laid out in Mad Max. I wonder what Mad Max would have looked like if they had had a bunch of money up front, though. Would it have still been as good of a movie? Um, I'm going to say no, because I think having less money forces you to make these really creative leaps when you're filming a movie. And I think it just pushes people to to do things better. Like it certainly worked for James Cameron stuff when yeah. he was first starting out. And I think George Miller is the same way because, you know, not to give any spoilers or anything for the new one, Fury Road, but everything that I've read and I haven't seen it yet says that, Although this has a really big budget, $150 million, it's all worth it. Like, that the the action in the movie is just, like, they made the most of every single dollar they had. I think perhaps 
that lends way to the argument that we should have more small directors handling the big budgets. Yeah, I think I think especially on sci-fi because I think a lot of people in Hollywood see sci-fi as like, oh yeah, you know, like throwing some special effects and the story is going to take care of itself, which is it's actually you know the exact opposite. It's like if the story is really really good, you don't need that many special effects to keep people interested in it. You need a little bit. Yeah, to make it, you know, to make the setting believable, to let them suspend their disbelief. But I think that story is always king in sci-fi especially. You know, any genre film, I think. But I think what makes Mad Max different in that regard is that there really isn't a need for much, like, it's not about, like, it's not Star Wars where the everything's completely different. It's not Star Trek where the world might as well be completely different because everything is, is so different. It's mm-hmm. more of like, you know, Toe Cutter's gang, one of their big thing is they steal gasoline. Yeah. Like they're after the gasoline and they're a motorcycle gang. So they're really just wasting everything they steal, but they're after the gasoline because the world is running out of uh, fossil fuel and everything's starting to collapse. Like that's the reason for the social unrest and everything. That's the precious juice. Right. That's destroying, uh, I guess, Australia at this point. But you don't have to put a lot of like laser gun shit in there because it's a different kind of science fiction. It's post-apocalyptic, like post. Uh, it's like dystopian. That's uh, yeah. Yeah, I'd say it's dystopian sci-fi from the perspective of like peak oil sci-fi. Yeah, which peak oil was like really that was the theory back in the late seventies, right? Yeah. Before like we developed other technology to extract like shale oil and things. Well, I mean, that's probably the yeah. the calculations they have were based off of their current ability to extract the oil deposits. Like, there are stuff, big deposits of oil everywhere that they couldn't get to because their drills weren't good enough and they didn't have, like, the lateral drilling technology and all that. Yeah, yeah. But, like, I, I think it's it's really, it's a really fun, it's a safe but fun way to experience, like, what that world would be like if peak oil had been true. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like the movie a lot. I mean... I think it's it's just well done. Yeah, it reminds me of a book about kind of the same thing called uh, The World Made by Hand. It's about uh, after the oil economy goes bust, how things kind of go back to more of an agrarian, uh, local sort of deal. Like, it's not about the global anymore. It's about, like, the local community. So I thought that's it's interesting. If you have the time, I recommend you read the book. Yeah, I think that that kind of ethos is reflected in the movie, too, because we don't see much happen outside of, like, this desolate part of the outback that Max and his other uh, police buddies patrol. I mean, we don't see any, um, like, we hear about the cities, right? Like, they say to some of the guys, like, ah, we're going to send you up to Melbourne or something for, like, processing, but we never see any of that, like, what's going on in the cities. So what's next for you? Next for me is a more recent movie, but uh, I think people will actually recognize this one because it it gets played a whole lot on TV called Sunshine. Oh, uh, yeah. I don't know how to say his name. Cillian Murphy. Yep, that's right. Yeah, Cillian Murphy. And actually, uh, Captain America Chris Evans is in it. Wow. And uh, Michelle Yeoh and Rose Byrne. So people who are like really, 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 really big movie stars now. And this was like back in 2007, so in the last decade. And the movie is directed by Danny Boyle, you know, the Academy Award winning guy. And it's all about scientists who are sent on this mission to kind of restart the sun because the sun is fizzling out and Earth is kind of freezing over. And uh, Earth had sent a ship with the payload to reignite the sun, and, like, they lost contact or something. Like, they they just lost contact with that ship, so they sent a second ship with uh, this crew of huge Hollywood stars. And, you know, their mission is to find out, one, what happened to the other ship, and then, two, to carry out the mission to restart the sun. And, I mean, I just really like this movie because it's a it's a really good tale about you know what happens when you are alone in space and like the isolation that and the paranoia that affects people 
because they find out a lot of what happened to the other ship. You know, it wasn't anything technically related. It was, you know, what happens when you're out there for that long. And I don't know. One of the best parts in the movie is just like the characters sit in this little room where uh, they can put on special glasses and like view the unfiltered light from the sun and just that, like, characters are, like, addicted to sitting in this room and getting their, like, sun starlight and stuff. <laughs> it's just a... It's a it's a really well-shot movie. Like, it looks really, really good. Um, I think the story kind of, like, ebbs and flows. But, uh, I mean, it's a really fun watch, actually, if you haven't seen it. So this is the core in space, then? Yeah, pretty much. And it's... But it's much better than The Core. I mean, The Core was just not a good movie for so many reasons. Like, you know, this is The Core, but with character development and, like, real story arcs and things like that. This is the same, I guess, the same loose connection to reality. You can detonate some kind of bomb to restart the Earth's core and or the sun. Right, they have some kind of, like, you know, super hydrogen payload or something to, like, refuel the sun so it can restart the the chain reaction that you know how the sun generates its energy like any good cult film it makes no sense whatsoever at points yeah i mean say what you will about the science i mean i think the the movie's really more focused on the characters and stuff like like uh you know cillian murphy's character you know goes through like a really pretty strong uh arc in this whole thing and you know especially in the third act which you know, that's where people say the movie really sucks because they do find out what happened and stuff to the other crew and things like that. But uh, I'm not going to ruin it, but I think it's a good movie. At least it's an interesting movie. I have to watch it. I haven't actually seen that one. But it reminded me of The Core when you were describing the, the restarting the sun thing. Yeah. Uh, so really, next for me is one that may take up the rest of this podcast. It's uh, Blade Runner. Yeah, I think that would be that would be number one on my list for best cult film. Yeah. I mean, special mention to The Matrix, but I think Blade Runner wins the prize of nobody knew what was, what was going on when it came out. Yeah. Yeah. Blade Runner, very philosophical and existential. <laughs> I don't think anybody really understood it. And, you know, how many cuts has the movie gone through? Yeah, I don't actually know how many different versions there are. There's there's a lot. I mean, I think there's at least four cuts of the movie. Let's see. There's I know there's the test screen version that they recut for the theatrical, so that's two right there. Then there's the like the three that have come out in the last. So there's like at least six versions of this movie. Yeah, there's like the special edition, the director's cut, and like <laughs> I think we, I have the director's cut. Yeah, the 2007 one, the final cut, is the only one that Ridley Scott actually had final cut on. Yeah, which is unfortunate because if they had given him final cut in the first place. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I can't even tell you which versions I've seen because they all run together. Like, in, in one, there's just, like, the movie ends. And then in another one, like, the movie ends, but Harrison Ford's, like, reading a voiceover at the end, like, explaining the entire plot. And yeah, or, like, isn't there some, like, the based on the ending you can see or you can imply whether or not he himself is a replicant or something? Yeah, that was never really explored in, I think, the theatrical version, but then one of the later ones was like, oh, well, that's somewhat implied in the book, so we're going to now have Harrison Ford read something at the end here to further that implication for the audience in the film, like... yeah. I really like this movie. I mean, I, I think it it does great uh, it does great uh, service to the the source material. Uh, Philip K. Dick's uh, what is it? Do androids dream of electric sheep? Great book in and of itself. Yeah, it does a great service to to that book because to me that book was all about like exploring what does it actually mean to be human, and then what is the line now between human and artificial life? And, you know, because, like, the replicants are basically indistinguishable from humans, and they can only tell by giving them this, um, like, retina test, right, to gauge their emotional reactions to things. Yeah, I know in the book yeah. there's there's two. There's the, there's the Benelli spine test, 
which I guess tested their, I think their reflex when they were rendered unconscious that they would start breathing again. Cause you're supposed to, you know, if you get knocked out, you're supposed to keep breathing. And then there's the, the sympathy one where it measures your pupil response or something. When you see pictures of like turtles on their back. Right. Cause humans have the urge, like humans feel sympathy, like, Oh, that poor turtle, I want to help. But apparently the replicants are just like, that's a turtle on its back. Yeah. No feelings. Yeah. Which always, uh, you know, that's, that's something I like about the movie too, is that, you know, the, the replicants who are on the run that Deckard is trying to kill, like, you know, you can see that they're not, they're supposed to be machines, but they actually have developed feelings. But I think that's implied to be the reason that they're, they're flawed in the view of the people who are hunting them down. (laughs) Like, yeah, you don't want your slave miners to be developing feelings. You want them to mine the fucking rocks. Yeah, and I always like that. I mean, I think everybody likes the scene at the end, like the, the ad-libbed, like, tears and rain thing that Rucker Howard does. I mean, that's yeah. a really good speech. All credit to him for pulling that out of his ass. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, I mean, like, he came up with all that Tannhauser Gate shit. And yeah, it's just, it's just... <laughs> like, Ridley's probably like, I don't know what you just said, but oh, I love it. <laughs> uh, just making it up on the spot. Like, that's... It is a really good speech, too. Like, you know, we think it's kind of funny, but it's also really, really good. And it's it's impactful, and it really brings uh, his arc to a close because kind of his point is, I've seen all this stuff, but nothing really matters. You know, I'm dying. There's mortality. Like, he gives, a, I guess, a very human take on somebody looking retrospectively at their life from, like, an objective view. Yeah. Where I guess it's kind of interesting, though, that Deckard doesn't seem to be, maybe this is just Harrison Ford, but it doesn't seem to be super duper human. Yeah. Like, in and of himself. Yeah, he's kind of, he's kind of seems kind of morose the whole movie. Like, yeah. He, he's very, he does his job. That's it. I, I mean, wonder if this was like, I don't know, because in, in the book it's based off that there's shit like, people's moods are all fucked up because there's this thing called the mood organ that you can play with at the beginning of your day or something or whenever you want really. And it'll just give you, you know, whatever mood you feel like you just push the button and that's how you'll feel. So I'm wondering if that was something that maybe they had wanted to include when they were writing up like the Deckard character profile for him. Just to make him a very matter of fact, um, neutral, person emotionally (laughs) well i'm wondering if it's like they wanted to maybe have that concept in the movie so you know deckard is normally a very boring person who just does his job and shoots the androids but his wife is like super into the mood thingy in the book like she's always playing with it and it really pisses him off yeah because he doesn't have a wife and yeah that's a big difference between the two right in the end of the movie he uh like he takes off out of the city with um what's her name rachel yeah yeah and then there's also the uh the thing I really would have liked them to include from the book were the, the two people who are like the two competing religions from the book. Uh, there's the one guy who was pushing the rock up the hill, the Mercer, and then there's the guy who has the 24-hour talk show, Buster Friendly, I think is his name, <laughs> yeah. who's, who's implied to be a robot or a CG creation or something. And it's interesting exploration of religion that you have these two competing ideas and one is just like fluff and inconsequential shit 20 so basically you know the e-network 24 hours a day and the other is this guy who is suffering for humanity's sins and pushing this rock up the hill all the time and you know he was killed by the government because he had you know magic powers i think they're trying to go for jesus there i'm not sure yeah i mean the film has a lot going on i like the film but i think that having that element included would have made it even better because i always found that to be a really compelling part of the book yeah, I mean, of course, that's what happens when you're part of a creative process, like in a studio, you know, other people are going to be able to cut things out and suggest things. And, you know, perhaps Ridley himself didn't want that in the in the story. Maybe he just wanted to focus on like a specific part, like, you know, what these androids are, are feeling and their journey instead of like all that peripheral stuff, though it may be really interesting. I think it's because this the movie has more to do with the androids than the book, really. Yeah. Because the book sticks pretty tightly to, like, Deckard is doing this, then he's doing this, then he's doing this. So the movie kind of jumps around, and I don't want to say explains, but it shows you more of what's going on, because nothing's really ever explained. 
Yeah, or like the you know the fucked up thing I never understand is uh, what's his name uh, Edward James Olmos's character, like the guy who fucking whistles and makes origami and puts it on people. <laughs> like what? yeah, like yeah. I, there's just a lot of stuff that that stuff uh, that shows up in the movie that no, it's there, but there's never any sort of explanation as to why it's there or like I don't know. It's really fun to watch and I love it. But you have to come into this expecting to be taken for a ride with, with Deckard, with Harrison Ford, who just lives in this world, so he doesn't give a fuck about any of this. Yeah. He doesn't need any of it explained to him, so the audience doesn't get it explained either. It's just there are these replicants who have escaped, and he must hunt them down. Yeah. The, and I just want to make a, a note that another thing that's really great about this movie is just the world building hmm. that uh, Ridley Scott does. Like, you know, the way it's shot, the visuals in the movie that you see they live in kind of this, like, dystopian metropolis with, like, giant, like, pyramids of office buildings and things that tower over everything else and, like, huge, huge ads. It looks like something like, you know, Space Tokyo or something. Dirty, yeah. Dirty Space Tokyo. And there's actually some speculation, too, that, like, Ridley has suggested that these two, um, the a- world of Alien and Blade Runner are connected and that like, you know, Tyrell Corporation is actually a competitor of like Waylon Utani or something, which I'm not sure that that really works out, but it's still, you know, whatever. It's an interesting concept at least to play around with. I think it's been pretty visually impactful though. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, every shot definitely counts in the movie. It's also worth the game. Uh, if anybody's played Deus Ex, that series, it takes, I think a lot of inspiration from, kind of the cyberpunk feel that Blade Runner has. Yeah. Uh, also, George Lucas took a lot of inspiration from the cyberpunk feel that Blade Runner has when he was designing uh, Coruscant, not only for the the prequel trilogy, but also for the special edition, because that was never actually in there, the celebration at the end of Return of the Jedi, right. where everybody's partying on Coruscant and trying to rip the Emperor statue down. Yep. That, if you look at that... We and then, saw free! No, the Gungans all died. <laughs> Do you look at that, and then you look at uh, Blade Runner, like especially the part where there's the pan shot of like the woman advertising the makeup and everything on the yeah. on the building. Yeah, look at that, and then watch the Return of the Jedi part where they're, everybody's celebrating at the end, trying to rip down the statue on Coruscant, and you're going to be like, hmm. Or like an Attack of the Clones where they're they're down in that, um, you know, like the the bar. Nightlife district. Oh, on the street, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like, the street looks exactly like Blade Runner. Oh, almost. The street and the skyline kind of looks like it, too, when they're having the speeder chase. Yeah, yeah. They're going through kind of like the uh, the grungy part of the, the city. Yeah, yeah. When they're going into the bad part of Coruscant, where yeah. the titty bar is they go to. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, not we're not saying George Lucas is necessarily a, a bad guy for or copying this, but just that that... He the, was inspired by The it. visual inspiration seems to be pretty... Uh... Although Ridley Scott's really good at that shit, like uh, Gladiator, that's also got a lot of iconic imagery, and he seems to know how to make a film look... Yeah, the guy, I mean, he started out, he was shooting commercials and things, and that's how he got into it. So he's always been a very visual director. So he's like the yeah. Jedi to Michael Bay's Sith then, because they both started filming commercials, and then one of them stopped and started making movies, and the other made Transformers. Yes. Yeah. Right. Michael. Well, actually, can you really say that Michael Bay stopped making commercials? Right. Oh, I, said, I said one of them stopped. Oh, okay. Right. And then the other one made Transformers. So yeah. 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 Ridley Scott stopped making commercials. Michael Bay just started <laughs> making longer commercials. Longer commercials with higher budgets and advertising more things at once. Right. Yeah. Yeah. How many things can we fit in a scene that have brands on them? A question answered in Bad Boys, I think, in the first ten minutes. Yes. Yeah, especially when it's important to mention Will Smith's car brand. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, I think Blade Runner is the absolute top of the list for, for cult films, although there are, there are literally tons of them out there, but we can't cover all of them. I'm sure we'll talk about more in the future, but just, you know, some honorable mentions, just we won't really talk about them, but peop- once people should watch, like I'm thinking um, Scanners, yep. Westworld, very... That was a very entertaining movie. Strange movie, but... Yeah, well, I mean, it's a Michael Crichton movie, right? So it's kind of like Jurassic Park with robots. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
you know, there's there's like a whole shit ton of David Cronenberg sci-fi films from the 80s that are like just like they kind of run the gamut between absolutely ghastly, horrific, like you don't want to watch them because they're so disgusting and, you know, ones that are actually pretty thought-provoking. Right? Like yeah. everybody thinks of The Fly. Like that's that was more that's not really a cult movie because that was actually kind of a hit, but uh you know, stuff like uh, The Brood, um, not really, I guess that could be kind of sci-fi because it was dealing with like, you know, ooh, like fictional uh, psychotherapy shit and all that. Just weird, weird stuff, but. <laughs> Can't say I've seen that one. No, I mean, it, it's, they're really an acquired taste, I think, that, which is why they're cult films. I mean, I think I only have very select few people really go for that but i was going to mention one other one that i think people should watch and it's a more recent one starring jim caviezel and uh just like uh, i started off with outland this movie is called outlander and it's actually jim caviezel is kind of a he's an alien like warrior cop guy and he crash lands on earth with this kind of um monster thing was in tow in his ship and it escapes. It's called like the Morwin or something. And so he actually crash lands in like Scandinavia and the Morwin starts killing tribes and things. So it's actually, it becomes a retelling of the Beowulf story with Jim Caviezel actually like filling in the Beowulf character role. And so it's all about, you know, how does this guy from, you know, another planet with this advanced technology, he has to work with these comparatively primitive Scandinavian, uh, you know, Norsemen and all that to fight this monster, which is basically, you know, the Morwen is like Grendel and its mother, and they have to, you know, fight the monster and track down, track it down and, you know, keep the other tribes from killing them and stuff like that. And I always thought it was a, it's a really interesting movie, and the first time I saw it was on the Sci-Fi Channel because I guess it didn't get really a, a wide theatrical release i never heard of it yeah i mean i had never heard of it too until i watched it and i was like what the hell is this movie and then i watched the whole thing and then at the end i was like you know that was actually worth it it was actually an interesting film and i give them a lot of credit for that and the the special effects are good and i thought it was very interesting so you know if you have the time give that a look you know i think we might do is be good to have maybe a three-part series on uh the matrix films uh yeah, like uh, in depth discussion. Yeah, <laughs> that went from uh, you know they because they went from cult kind of wow that was a strange Keanu Reeves movie that was weird, right to okay, sort of super weird and then the movies started out as very original cult kind of high concept, interesting films that were just kind of strange and then they went totally insane off the rails got lost in themselves. Yeah, like, I, I think the first one, definitely, it started out as, like, a sleeper hit. Mm-hmm. And then, I think by the end of that year, like, 1999 was when I think it came out. Like, it was, like, a, a mega, mega hit and stuff. And it was, like, a franchise movie now. But, it, you know, it was, like, a slow burn. <laughs> yeah, I think it just, it, it was a more of a, when you saw it, you would tell your friends, like, wow, it was a really cool movie. Boy, it was fucked up, but it was cool, and then that sort of started to spread because the the critical reception for it was, I was entertained for two hours, but I couldn't tell you what happened. Yeah, like the critics never got it. Yeah, they didn't. They really didn't get it at the time, and I never remember seeing um, a commercial advertising this movie. I remember seeing the movie poster for it, but yeah. never any sort of like print or visual ads. Yeah, yeah, I think. Uh, I don't think they had a really huge budget for that. And that, that is how I think everybody found out about the movie back then. It's like you saw it and you told your friends about it or somebody told you. So, well, yeah, look out for that. That'll be there. Once we dig Sam up from whatever happened to him, I mean, maybe we can send Deckard after him to hunt him down, drag him back in. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Maybe. Oh, yeah, yeah. Here's, here's one more cult movie, and this movie is so bad that you will thank me for turning you on to it, and then you'll never watch it again. <laughs> it's it's so fucking weird. It's uh, called The Lawnmower Man. Oh, God. Yeah, yeah. And so it's actually, it's supposed to have been based on a short story by Stephen King, 
And the short story called The Lawnmower Man has nothing, nothing to do with the movie that they turned out. And Stephen King actually like tried to sue them, I guess, to remove his his name and the title from it. And they they let him go like that they weren't going to use his name, but the, the title kept. And it's like about this Pierce Brosnan pre James Bond is like experimenting with virtual reality and like increasing intelligence. And he decides to test it out on like the like mentally handicapped lawnmower guy and turns him into like a super genius who becomes like a deranged psychopath who like kills people in virtual reality and stuff. And <laughs> Go and watch yeah. it. You won't thank me. Um, yeah, but as far as cult films go, I know there's like a very, very small minority of people out there who who just think that movie is the bomb. But you know what you ought to watch instead is the thing. That's yes, a, that's a better quasi cult. And movie. I was saving that for the very end because although I think Blade Runner is objectively the best cult movie out there, the most recognized one, the thing is my favorite. Yep, because. That is a really, really good story about, again, isolation and paranoia. And the special effects in that, pre-CGI, they're absolutely fucking, like, demented crazy. I mean, I watched that today, and it still fucking grosses me out. That doesn't really bother me to watch it, but, you know, I just find it a very... It's a very fun watch. Especially once you figure out, or somebody tells you what the Norwegian guys are shouting in the beginning. Yeah, because the it's a really ingenious setup that a bunch of American scientists wouldn't speak Norwegian, and the Norwegian right. guys wouldn't speak English. They're so saying not a dog. It's not a dog. It's not a dog. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which they cover the backstory behind. Spoilers is not a dog. Right. They don't they cover the backstory in like the the thing prequel that they made in like 2011, which yeah. really wasn't that great. But uh, this this one. I mean, this is actually, the 1982 John Carpenter one is a remake of the 1955, like, thing from another world, which was, like, just basically a giant, like, carrot chasing people around, guy in a suit, and then they made this one, and I think that people never gave this one a shot when it came out, and it's just become, like, recognized as a really great movie in the years since. I think it's a good science fiction story. Yeah. That also has the virtue of good special effects and good action. So it, it seems to have like the trifecta, the winning trifecta. Yeah. Well, I I always love the part too in that where, um, like, it just has great pacing. The part where he's got them all tied down to the chair and they're testing their blood, and the one guy starts like freaking out and becoming like he starts mutating and stuff because he was the thing. And you know, uh, Kurt Russell's character is going to torch him. And then his, his, uh, the torch doesn't work. The flamethrower doesn't work. Like it just shuts off. And you know, that, that scene was so great because they had given him this flamethrower earlier on, like, you know, Oh, he's going to kill everybody. He's going to kill the thing with this. And then it doesn't work. And then at the end, you're left wondering like, Hmm, like who has been, who has been absorbed? Well, at the end, isn't it just the two? It's two people. Yeah, it's uh, Childs, the the black guy, and, and Kurt, Russell. Kurt Russell. And it's just like, because you don't see what happened to Childs, right? Right. Like, you wonder, like, okay, is he really, is he the thing or not? And what's going to happen? And, like, they're basically going to freeze to death. Because Childs says, like, oh, I was lost in the storm. It's like there's a blizzard storm thing going on. I was like, oh, I was lost in the storm. What happened? Oh, my God, everything's on fire. Like, and Kurt Russell's... You know, Childs doesn't know what happened to Kurt Russell, and Kurt Russell doesn't know what happened to him. So it's kind of like they both have this mutual, like, you know what? It, we're never going to be able to truly trust each other that we're not the thing. So let's just sit here and stare at each other while we freeze to death and die. And play chess. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> Which is like the only <laughs> thing that survives from their encampment. Although I guess if the thing wouldn't know how to play chess, so that might have been an indicator, but maybe I'm high. Well, yeah, it would because it absorbed like everything of the of whatever organism oh, it, it right. actually it, becomes it takes the, the right. memories too okay yeah. yeah so i'm definitely high yeah and <laughs> yeah that that is my all-time favorite sci-fi cult movie just because it's i think it is like one of like a perfect movie in terms of the pacing and you know just the story itself this thing from another world that like actually absorbs people and like takes on their shape and stuff 
And I think it's an important lesson on why you should always have your Norwegian phrasebook handy. Yeah. Or or just like anything that comes from another camp, just kill it immediately. Or, you know, a mysterious dog being chased by a helicopter. So yeah. what do you, what is like your favorite special effect from the thing? Uh, the spider head. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm going to say the grossest thing is probably the... Uh, it has to be between where like uh, the guy gets his hands chopped off and the guy's stomach when he's doing the autopsy. Oh yeah, and um, like when it's the dog and it starts like eating the other dogs, like becomes that like three mouthed thing. That's also like the blood blood test special effect thing. Oh, where the blood like jumps off the platter. Yeah, yeah that was cool. Also uh, parodied very well in South Park. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that's the mark of a good good cult movie is that it's impactful and creative people, you know, build off of it and use it later. Yeah, I'm sure Seth MacFarlane has ripped it off in Family Guy a few times already. Uh, maybe it is not, an 80s thing, right? Not so much ripped it off as just like, hey, remember the time when? Yeah. The thing? Non sequitur. Yeah, like, yeah. do you remember the 80s too? Yep, we remember the 80s. Thank you. Yeah, so I guess I'm all tapped out. I have I know there's tons of them out there, but those those are the things that resonate for me. I think it's a pretty good list. We gave people hopefully uh, some new insight, maybe turned you on to some films that you hadn't heard of before. Remember, there's a lot in the sci-fi genre, so if you haven't heard of it, chances are there's a reason for that. But it could also be because it's something that uh, had just not been on your radar before, right? I'll tell you what should be on your radar, though. Uh, at Super High Underscore Sci Fi on Twitter, our Super High Sci Fi dot com. Also, check out Super High Sci Fi on YouTube, where we will be having the first of our Super High Sci Fi Let's Plays coming out, where we're going to start introducing some people out there, hopefully, to some good games that they had never seen in the sci fi genre. And the first game that we're going to put up there and kind of We'll see how well it goes for us playing it is the Granddaddy 4X game, Master of Orion 2. So hopefully you're looking forward to that. We'll be back next week. Maybe Sam will be here. Maybe he won't. Uh, for those of you who are in New Jersey, if you could keep an eye out for Sam, definitely go ahead and send us a picture on Twitter. If you think you see a bearded man walking around, it could be Sam. Don't send pictures, that fake picture of Bigfoot. We're going to we're know yeah. that's fake. We know. We know it's fake. All right, thanks for listening.